You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we're tackling the thorny question of net zero carbon. What does net zero carbon really mean? And can architects claim that anything we do is actually net zero in terms of carbon? And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. want to do net zero what is net zero calling net zero buildings and then accounting for the balance with an offset can be a bit smoke and mirrors we may theoretically be able to get to the net zero position on operational emissions but embodied carbon is a massive issue and there's definitely a limit of viable verified high quality offsets especially within the local UK market and then if they did exist how sustainable are they how long will they last Today, our guest is Louisa Bowles, Partner and Sustainability Lead at Hawkins Brown, and this year's AJ100 Sustainability Champion for her work both within the practice and her widespread industry engagement. Louisa has been instrumental in achieving consensus around the definition of whole life carbon through her work with the UKGBC, LETI, and the Whole Life Carbon Network. I first met Louisa in 2013 with Roger Hawkins when they presented for and won the AJ100 Sustainable Practice of the Year. It was early days for sustainability in the practice then. A decade later, the practice has grown and Louisa heads a four-strong team. Hawkins Brown has been a front runner in tackling embodied carbon with the release of the HBERT tool, its open source embodied carbon tool, in 2018. Hi, Louisa, it's great to have you with us today. Let's start by talking about how you've approached embedding sustainability across the practice over the last few years. So I guess to answer this, I'm going to briefly talk about the practice, but I promise briefly. So Hawkins Brown are about 300 people and we're spread across five different offices. So London, Manchester, Edinburgh, Ireland and LA. So there's a vast diversity across scales and sectors. and and different types of work and different types of clients. Our approach needed to be quite flexible in how we embedded that. Also at Hawkins Brown, the sustainability team were embedded into our specialist design studio, which I also head up and having the two roles is super helpful. So the specialist design studio is a group of people with all kinds of specialist skills, including digital design, BIM, visualization, technical expertise, project delivery, and the power of sustainability sort of sitting within this group is the ability to spread that knowledge approaches and the different milestone checkpoints across a much bigger group of people. So we have more impact in that way. The team itself has grown in response to both internal and external demand. So 
there has been a group in the office ever since I joined, so I joined in 2004. And I think the practice has had a sort of lateral approach of how it embeds sustainability, you know, slightly off-kilter take on it. But what happened was in 2012, we then initiated this co-funded project with UCL into the life cycle analysis, for which I was then the key contact. And our NGD worked with us in the office every week. And together we did try and use his time as well as for the research to integrate better practices into the work we were doing, do general surgeries and project reviews. And it was really only when he left, which left a bit of a hole in that level of expertise, that we were then able to campaign to get someone full time. So at this point I was running jobs still and running a studio, so I was still on my own learning curve. And then HBERT was launched in 2018, then there was the media storm in 2019 with Architects Declare and Extinction Rebellion and Reba 2030. So then that speared the practice and the partnership at the time to to invest, again, more resource. So we had an LCA specialist join us. And then in 2020, I was given the role of sustainability lead. So it's sort of been an incremental process, really. And I certainly myself had a lot of learning to do. And how do you upskill Hawkins Brown staff? I think that's a really good question. So there's a mixture of channels. Obviously, there's a lot of us and we all have different knowledge bases. So firstly, we have a simple and universal approach to sustainability, which I thought was really important to get this collective buy-in. It's easy to explain quite quickly and it recognises the flexibility and the diversity of the clients and the scales that we work across. So it's sort of a two-pronged strapline of decreasing carbon emissions and enhancing society or the human experience. And within that framework, you can flex it to a whole lot of different scenarios and situations. I think, secondly, we have layers of communication across the practice. So if there's a quick-fire message that everyone needs to know about, like a new regulation or an initiative, then we present in the all-practice meeting that happens every fortnight. And then alongside, we run CPD programmes which can go into a bit more depth, and then formal training as well. So we've got an annual rolling programme now of allowing people access to pacifiers training, and then we've seen that as quite important for getting the basic building physics knowledge. And there's also a rolling programme which is a bit more tailored of embodied carbon and whole life carbon advice related to using the HBIRT tool. So there's a whole range. The final layer is the individual conversations and project reviews and questions So we make time for that and then we help people prep for meetings if we can't be there. And I think the REBA 2030 challenge and things like that have added the authenticity of this being an approach that should be adopted and thought about. And anyone, no matter what their knowledge, can start and use that material and those data points. And the key solution then is to upskill everyone. It's not always down to the specialists. So what are the skills of the people in your in your little team, the four or five people you've got in your team? Yeah, we're all quite complementary and it's been really nice to work with them. So we've all got an architectural training and background, but then a whole number of different routes into the profession. I tend to lead, I guess, on the front end and the early stage stuff and getting the concepts right and trying to translate, I guess, some of the terminology and language into how you would then integrate it into an architectural project. One of my other lead designers, trained as an architect, but is uh, has worked extensively in engineering practices, so brings that level of building physics and design analysis 
we have another great designer who has a broad range of skills from life cycle analysis all the way to sort of daylight analysis and then a lot of the early stage passive analysis which we're trying to integrate right from the first principles and then we have two team members who are really experienced at embodied carbon and whole life carbon analysis and really focus on that. That's really interesting. So how do you yourself stay abreast of what's happening in, in this field that is changing so fast? Yeah, it does feel like it's changing really fast. And I suppose that's one of the exciting things about the job and the role and coming into it at this point. You realise how generous people are with their time and they're just so keen to share knowledge. So there's a vast number of different networks that I'm either part of, an active part, or I keep in touch with. I've learned a huge amount from my colleagues at Letty, where I've led and then supported on different projects. The steering group of the Whole Life Carbon Network are just so knowledgeable about a range of different things. So if we often need to check something, we'll bounce it off that group. We have a network, a growing network, a rapidly growing network of heads of sustainability in architectural practices. And this has been so interesting for me. When I became part of that group initially, I think there are about 10 practices involved and now there's over 40 and it seems to grow every week. And that's brilliant to see. So if someone is interested in joining that group, who do they contact? They'd probably potentially know someone in there, but certainly myself or the person who coordinates that is um, Diane Dina from Howard Tompkins. Okay, a slightly different question. Would you say that the appetite for sustainability from your clients has changed recently? What are your observations about that? What are clients looking for? I would say they definitely have. It's increasing all the time. I think, again, I referred to that sort of media storm in 2019, and I think clients responded to that just as much as as architects and designers and engineers and everyone. And it's one of the reasons, obviously, that we're seeing this massive increase in the title and the job of sustainability lead, head of sustainability. I guess we have a huge demand, sometimes trying to actually just explain to clients and teams of all levels what the evolving situation means for them at any one point. So a lot of it's, as I said, interpreting the language and the terminology into actually what do you need to do on the ground to get this to work? You know, if you want to do net zero, what is net zero, for example? And then I guess increasingly our team are seeing clients ask for embedded strategies, bits of additional analysis to back up decision making and then track their own aspirations and goals. So there's a lot more sort of design analysis being requested. I mean, it's all brilliant and it's positive. Sometimes it's not all plain sailing. It feels a bit stop-start. Clients have budgets and we have fees and then sometimes it's hard to make the commercial argument for additional work. But, you know, every day we make progress and we just have to keep going. You've been working a lot on the frameworks for the built environment sector to consider the carbon impact of buildings, with a lot of working with other organisations like Letty, Reba, iStruct-E, the Whole Life Carbon Network. One part of this is the carbon definitions for the built environment, buildings and infrastructure. And I understand you fed into some of Letty's one pages to explain the issues. Could you start by explaining what whole life carbon is? Yeah, so there was a large set of information that a number of organisations all contributed to, which was released last May 2021. And it's hosted on the Letty website. And one of those pieces was, yeah, one page on whole life carbon 
and a set of definitions which has been led by Simon Sturgis from the Whole Life Carbon Network and is actually still evolving, so it's an evolving situation. But at a basic level, whole life carbon emissions encompass both the operational and the embodied greenhouse gas emissions of a building or an asset over its life cycle. And that includes product manufacture, installation, the use of the building or the asset, the maintenance, end of life and disposal. So to try and just boil it down. <laughs> so why was it so complex to achieve consensus about this definition? Uh, we have grappled with this question ourselves, designing HBIRT every every week and in a lot of industry discussions as well. So I think it's partly because to define whole life carbon is by extension to start to say what net zero should be. And then, of course, that should be an onerous performance because it has to be. And I think a further complication is the complexity of the built industry itself. So there are numerous built topologies, including infrastructure, which we're now trying to encompass into the definitions to make sure it's not forgotten and that it's measured consistently across various different types of assets. And then there are numerous eras and construction types and protection levels for different buildings. I guess in terms of operational emissions, it's taken time to understand what's best and what's exemplary in terms of minimising and reducing and what's possible for certain topologies, how fast the grid's likely to decarbonise. Although this work is all far more advanced already than where we are with embodied carbon at the moment, and here there are already so many different life cycle stages that you have to report against. I think I counted 12 for a building. What's within them, there's almost an infinite number of materials and build-ups. The emissions are owned by the whole project team, not just one person or one company. And then you've got Module D on, added on top, which is the potential for reuse and recycling at the end of the process. So it's a complex beast. So how does whole life carbon deal with the end of life of a building? This is quite a knotty question, I think. So at the moment, the standards, the way they're written, end of life in an LCA is dealt with by the C life cycle stages. So they measure the energy taken to demount the buildings, transport whatever material is taken to its final destination, and then any emissions released. Then there's module D, which I mentioned, which is the potential for reuse. So based on the standards, you can't include that in your calculation. And that's because there could be numerous pathways for that. So the, where the material is taken at the end of a life cycle you know, there's potentially a number of different options. And because you hope that building's not going to be taken down for several generations, there's no real way of predicting what will actually happen to it. So it's a scenario sort of based calculation. In regards retrofit, based on the standards at the moment, it gives a massive benefit in upfront carbon. So your A1s to your A5s, which are the emissions that are released by the end of practical completion. Given that structure alone can be about 60% of the emissions at least, then the savings in that regard certainly are, you know, can be really large. And if a client's comparing refurbishment with new build, the emissions are saved in the near future, which is the, re the other really critical bit, because that's what we all need to be working towards reducing right now to limit uh, temperature rise to the 1.5 degrees that has been set. So what's the best way for architects to get to grips with calculating these figures? For a lot of architects I think it's quite daunting looking at this because we can explain the complexity and the barriers and then the next level is well okay how do I do it 
I suppose at a basic level, it's really important to remember that it's actually quite a simple calculation. So you have a volume of material in a building, and then you have a carbon coefficient, basically a set of emissions. There are a growing number of database sources that you can access. When we started, we started by looking at the generic material database, which was one of the free ones, which is the ICE, and it's a good way of getting an understanding of which materials perform better or worse. And then we started building up an internal library of facade build-ups and internal assembly build-ups, etc., that we could refer to. Increasingly, there are EPDs, so environmental product declarations, available. There's not as many in the UK as perhaps in other countries, but they are becoming increasingly available. And they will do the calculation for you, essentially. Yeah, that's very much consistent. We, we, I chaired a panel recently in the Roka showroom where we had several people with someone from Field and Clegg, and not Joe, Tim Dundecker, and two or three other architects and engineers saying, how do you, how do you get started with this? How do you do it? And they're saying exactly what you're saying. And you just have to hear this a number of times, and then you start to get it. And, and the basic concept is very simple. But the doing of it, it was really funny because Tim said, someone asked, well, or maybe I asked, how long does it take to actually do this FCB carbon tool? And he said, oh, well, once you get the hang of it, it's 10 minutes. <laughs> so, But to getting the hang of it part maybe is a little longer. Well, Hawkins Brown was a front runner with your HBERT tool. So can you describe it for our listeners briefly? Yeah, so there are a few different versions of HBERT now because we've been working on it for so long. So we still have what we're calling HBERT version 1. So that's still available for free on our website. You can just download it. And we've been playing with it in the background and it's updated to Revit 2022 compatibility. So we understand a lot of students still access it as well. We've got a couple of universities at least we know use it. So it contains a material database. So not EPD library, but a material database derived from that ICE database. It plugs into Revit and it measures embodied carbon over the life cycle stages A to C, excluding B6 and B7. The downside these days, because you're expected to report generally breaking everything down into building elements, is that that tool extracts material as a lump. So it says, okay, there's this much metal, but you don't necessarily know where in the building that's used. I think going forwards, yeah, that's going to make the tool more applicable probably to to people starting out looking at elements of buildings. And then we have several in-house versions of of HBERT as well, which do various things. So we have a whole life carbon benchmarking spreadsheet, a spreadsheet for early stage outline specification optioneering, which we're hoping to roll out to the office as a bit of a training tool once it's tidied up. And then a whole life carbon Revit plugin, which is the web tool that we use once the projects are, are a lot more developed and that centralizes all our data so we can use it for comparisons and benchmarks and things. There's so many tools available now and so many practices developing their own tools. And then the, there's a passive house ribbon from the AECB which works with PHPP and there's one click LCA. Do you ever use any of these other tools or you? work completely with your own system that you've developed? We tend to try and prioritise relying on HBERT because it means that we can centralise the data, as I said, and we've got a sort of common thread through a project. But what we have found, and it has been a lesson actually, because of the assumptions that are made when you use these tools still, 
And I think other European countries are further ahead on the methodologies than we are and, and standardising so that most tools will give you effectively the same output. We're not quite there in the UK market at the moment because there's so many assumptions still that you make when you're doing these calculations, which is why it's not as widespread maybe as it could be. So in certain situations, we've found actually using one click where we know the data is going to be taken by another party, for example, and they need to understand the way it's calculated or the assumptions that have been made, we will probably default to one click in that situation because it just means there's a bit more consistency because so many people at the moment in the industry are familiar with the way that one works. But generally, internally, yeah, we'll try and prioritise HBIT, mainly because it's useful for in-house teams who want visuals and graphics and then they want to control the materials that are being tagged in the models and they want to use it live as they're designing. And for that, internally for us, it's it's useful. That just seems like a huge breakthrough and a huge step forward. So you've given evidence recently to the Parliamentary Audit Committee about having embodied carbon in the building regulations based on the new Part Z document. Can you explain the proposals and tell us what it was like presenting that and how was it received? It was an incredible experience, an exciting thing, I think, to be invited to that level of discussion. And obviously the hope is that the evidence that was given by so many professionals, actually, there were a number of committees and it was an extensive sort of months-long process coordinated actually by Simon Sturgis from the Whole Life Carbon Network, And obviously the hope was that there were a number of findings and recommendations that the government will swiftly act upon. In terms of Part Z, that is an industry proposed amendment to the building regulations to introduce mandatory whole life carbon reporting for buildings over a specific size. So not yet limits, but just the principle that you would report the figures and it would be interrogated as part of your building regulations submission. So the committee released its report in May this year and the support for Part Z in particular and whole life carbon mandatory reporting was pretty overwhelming and the recommendation was that the regulation should be introduced by December 23, I think, at the latest. So there's a bit of progress this month even. I think it was reintroduced back to Parliament again. So, yeah, we just keep watching and hoping. So let's come back to net zero carbon Buildings and the infrastructure that serves them work as a a system, but a net zero building doesn't count the transport impacts, so it doesn't penalise unsustainable settlement patterns. How do we address this? I guess this question relates to the design of infrastructure or large master plans, maybe. Um, There are two new life cycle stages, which I think are either about to be adopted or, or... integrated into the standards or if they haven't been already they soon will be one is a0 and one is b8 so a0 would account for the carbon emissions released during the design of something that is essentially a new piece of city or a large asset and requires a design team to be on site as the emissions taken to to design and construct and then b8 would relate to the user carbon related to them the idea is, for example, and actually we've, we've done a number of infrastructure projects in Hawkins Brown as well, and the, the discussion point of designing these is that it has historically been quite difficult to account for the upfront carbon of designing them versus then the carbon saving that you would get by 
for example, taking vehicles off the road, you know, that historically has been quite hard to understand. And I think in your point um, around unsustainable settlements, I think if B8, for example, was introduced, that would be another way of balancing out the options, you know, is it better to build here or densify here? So this would include the carbon that's generated from people driving to somewhere, for example, is that right? I've heard it in relation to, say, stations or transport hubs where you're trying to calculate the amount of carbon emitted, for example, by train patterns, etc. So by extension for a master plan, it should extend to an assumption on the number of car journeys someone might make if they lived here versus here. But I cannot tell you for definite that is the way the guidance is structured at the moment. I think it would be a good idea if it was. Interesting. No, it's really interesting because, you know, as architects that we're trained to think about buildings, that's why I was very happy to see architects declare climate emergency and biodiversity. This whole focus on net zero carbon buildings completely ignores the whole issue of ecology and biodiversity and equally the, the importance of healthy materials. How do you bring that into your work at Hawkins Brown? I think although slightly imperfect, net zero carbon can sometimes be used as a good basic measure, but then for the others, you do need an additional framework. And certainly I would agree it's not brilliant at measuring things like biodiversity increases and ecology. For the advocacy of healthy materials, though, I would say it's not actually bad. For example, to reach some of the REBA 2030 challenge metrics or strive to a Letty Band B, for example, you need to use really, in our experience, a predominantly natural material palette or reused materials and then utilise passive design to emit lots of MAP, for example. So if you really do strive for those upper levels, I think you're pushed in a direction implicitly, even if not explicitly. And then you've got a sort of add-on effect, I guess, of passive approach and natural self-finishing materials. They're sort of inherently lower carbon, they're more renewable, they do enable healthier environments internally with better air quality and then better outcomes for people who are building the buildings, etc. So it's an approach that I do try and advocate, I guess, day-to-day in project reviews. So with a, a net zero carbon building, it's actually the building plus some offsets through sequestration elsewhere that adds up to zero. So calling a building net zero, it makes it look harmless when really they're taking a share of the sequestration that's available that could be used for solving the housing crisis or or making more walkable communities or retrofitting existing buildings. Yeah, what's your take on on this? Yeah, what's what's your, your take? My understanding is that sequestration primarily relates to the carbon storage within materials And most commonly it's biogenic and it's stored within natural materials, but then there are studies into sort of other forms of this. But the point, I guess, with sequestration versus what should be a good quality offset, if that's available, sequestration still has the risk of being released at the end of life, for example. So it's not a permanent solution. So I think what, at least in the UK GBC guidance that was issued last year, they were trying to explain and strive for the fact that an offset should be permanent and it should lock the carbon away and it should be removed forever. Whereas sequestration is a slightly different process. But I completely agree with you that, yeah, calling net zero buildings and then accounting for the balance with an offset 
can be a bit smoke and mirrors. But I guess this is the other thing where the definitions come in, I think, and where they can be super helpful. So if a project team has done everything that, that they are responsible for, then they should be able to use this net zero band. But the criteria that we're trying to write into the definitions and why they are still being interrogated, the version that was proposed last year is still imperfect is because the requirements to term yourself net zero, the pinnacle of performance, just have to be so onerous and so specific to avoid, as as you've hinted in your question, this greenwashing type approach. So public data disclosure, third-party verifications of the analysis, annual operational reporting, all of this stuff, you know, needs to be itemised out. And then I guess we've had a lot of discussions also about whether a building could, for example, be net zero in progress. So a team have done all they can through their modelling and their analysis. And then it's a recognition that the obligation passes to the owner or the tenant to operate the building as it's designed, make measurements, the declarations, etc. So there was a Letty-Sibsi combined document released this year tackling that question. There's quite a lengthy document available if anyone's interested and I guess the purpose was to encourage people to just get started on the journey don't look at the top of the mountain and think oh I can't do that it was to say actually there are steps on this journey and to try and sort of break down what those steps might be so that you don't just fall at the first hurdle the other thing is that we're still starting to see although there are disagreements about exactly when where the grid decarbonises to a point where there are net zero emissions operationally, for example. And this is where the qualification of a building being all electric, meeting specific EUI targets, that's really important because we know the renewable grid capacity isn't large enough. And we're seeing actually in different parts of the world, they're so low on capacity that they're bringing in peak demand limits as well. So we're not only having to manage quantity of energy, it's actually when that energy is used and how it's stored. So I think that's going to be another layer that starts to come in in the UK at some point as well. And then, yes, there's an issue with in terms of embodied carbon. We may theoretically be able to get to the net zero position on operational emissions, but embodied carbon is a massive issue. And there's a, definitely a limit of viable, verified, high-quality offsets, especially within the local UK market. And then if they did exist, how sustainable are they? How long will they last? To take sequestration... It doesn't really confer a huge benefit with an LCA at the moment because you account for the negative carbon storage in the first bit of your calc, but at the moment you essentially add the positive back on at the end of life because you don't know how that material is going to be disposed of. So actually it's a break-even point in an LCA calc at the moment. If you're sequestering short-lived materials like straw... Is that treated differently to, for example, timber, where you could say, oh, well, maybe the timber would have been stored longer in a tree before you chopped it down? Is there a difference there? Probably a slight difference, because with a structural frame, for example, you could argue that the well-protected timber structure should last for the 60 years of the reference period you do the calc on and then beyond. Whereas with straw, again, it depends on where it's used in the building. If it's an insulation material, it's encapsulated and protected, then arguably, yeah, again, the replacement cycle on that wouldn't necessarily be too long. But I guess you'd have to account for whether that material is going to degrade and whether you're going to have to replace it within that reference period. 
And then if you're replacing it, every time you replace it, you need to effectively add on to your calculation the emissions associated with the whole process of extracting it, disposing of it, putting it back in again. More generally, the way that the LCA works, you're not meant to say that your building is carbon negative, for example, which is a a phrase you sometimes hear, because it's sequestering carbon, because we don't know how long that's going to be for. It's a real risk, yeah. And I think that's why we're trying to be a lot more explicit in the definitions, I suppose, so that if a building genuinely is carbon negative, it's been recognised in the right way. It is theoretically possible for that to happen. For example, if you had a an entirely natural material, let's say a pavilion, which was demountable, and you set the life cycle at 15 years, and then so you were in control then of where the materials went at the end of their life. And at the end of life bit, when you did your... I mean, this is all quite theoretical at the moment, because we, but in the definitions, if you do your end-of-life calc and then you you can guarantee that 100% of those materials are not going to landfill, they're not being incinerated, they're not releasing those emissions back into the environment, then, yeah, at the end of that particular unit's life, you could claim that you are at least on balance, if not the negative. You touched on offsets, and I chaired a breakfast event not too long ago where there were a number of developers, and there was a lot of talk about offsets and it seemed to be like the way to get to where people want to go. So so can you elaborate on kind of what the current thinking is and how you deal with it in your practice? Yeah, I can tell you where we're at. I can't tell you that we've necessarily solved it. So we often reference actually the UKGBC work that was done, but because it's actually quite clear in what a good quality offset, I guess the qualities that it should have. And it goes through things like it has to be ethical, so it can't create an issue somewhere else. It has to be measurable, it has to be permanent, and it has to be additional to anything that would have been done otherwise. So it has to be specific for that project and attributed to that project and not used for anything else, so no double counting, and an equivalent emission, basically, to the one that you're trying to offset. I think the trouble is there's not a huge number of options, as I said, in the, and certainly in the UK... There are some international schemes, and they are verified, but you drill down into them and they you know, one could argue sometimes the carbon removals aren't necessarily completely directly related to the type of emission you're trying to offset in your own country, for example. Is it viable to say, I don't know, you're building a commercial office building somewhere in, say, Islington, the London borough of Islington, that you as the developer would contribute to the thermal upgrading of some social housing nearby in the borough? I would much prefer that to be seen as a, as a viable route. I know some developers essentially tax their own carbon emissions on projects, for example, create internal funds and then fund retrofit or carbon removal projects. I must admit, for our office, I was looking at whether there was anything available locally, so our London office is based in Islington, and whether there was anything, for example, that the borough council was able to help us with locally, because we'd prefer to twin it to you know, an actual location. And it's just such an immature market, but that, that sort of thing doesn't exist. But I think if those solutions were developed, you'd have a, a lot of locally engaged businesses. You'd potentially be able to raise quite a lot of money for local improvement projects. 
When I lecture, one of the um, slides I often show is a diagram by Mario Cucinella. I, I don't know if you know his work. He's a Bologna-based architect who started with Renzo Piano. And he he draws a line and then he plots his, this is an old drawing that he showed a number of years ago, but I think if every practice did it, it would be helpful. You you have a line and you you locate your projects within the practice, which are most sustainable and which are less. And I think this is really helpful in getting a shared understanding, even within a practice of which projects are pushing the boundaries, and they may be pushing in one area and not in another. But what I wanted to ask you is, which projects you're most proud of that Hawkins Brown has done in terms of these achievements? So obviously, as a practice, we're hugely proud of the Agar Grove project, because for us, that was a breakthrough in terms of understanding the passive house methodology, what it can offer, how robust it is, and obviously we're still Maybe describe briefly what it was, because not all our listeners may be familiar with it. Yeah, okay, thank you. So Agar Grove is a um, essentially an estate regeneration project that we have been working on already for a number of years with the borough of Camden. We are just building 1C on site. 1A is complete and has won numerous awards for its... um, for its approach and also the transparency within which the borough are willing to share their knowledge and their data and their learning. And we're just starting into the design period for phase 2A as well now. So all the units will be Passive House certified and then the final phase will be the refurbishment of one of the existing towers on the site. When it's finished, it should feel like part of the city again. So the estate was historically very cut off from its surroundings was quite confusing to walk around and there's also been a densification program but that's been managed really sensitively I think from the point of view of the residents being involved and remaining on site while the works are complete and moving into their homes that they've just seen built so the whole thing really has been managed quite well from the social aspect and the energy aspect. What we've realised having done some embodied carbon calcs is that the next step on a project like that, for example, would then be to interrogate down to the next level and knit the two together, which we are trying to do on on projects as we're going through. But I, yeah, we haven't delivered on any of that work yet. I think the other one that's been super interesting from the point of view of developing our role as architects has been a project that we've been working on with the Nottingham Trent University they were really keen to have a net zero whole life building. We've been helping them through the process, really. We've managed a whole stream of carbon workshops right at the beginning of the process. That was an education upskilling piece almost, more than a reduction process initially. And we did adopt cost and carbon decision-making trees when, you know, through value engineering processes, etc. And that's now being delivered on site by a contractor who's taken on board the analysis that was done at tender and planning stage and is is measuring as they're going and and reporting against those figures. So in some senses, I guess we don't yet know where it will land, whether it will hit it, be under, be over, but the whole point of that project is it's integrating the method into the way that the whole team has worked. And that is just as useful learning at the stage we're at now as hitting a number, for example. So maybe a couple of examples there. And what have you got in the pipeline that you're most excited about? 
I guess we spent the last year gaining a lot of this experience and the embodied and the whole life carbon. And what I have found is that when our team is involved, you know, even if it's a little piece of work, additional work, you know, doing some of that analysis is that because the team are involved much more day to day in meetings or design discussions, they're then able to feed in lots of other ideas. So I think seeing those projects get to the later design stages and be delivered will be super exciting. Then we also want to capitalise on the growing passive design and analysis skills of the team, which again, we've only really had those skills in-house for maybe just less than a year. So the projects that have used those as their design principles aren't fully through their developed stages. We've also embarked on a data collection process or at least visualisation exercise, which sounds really unglamorous and yet it's not very exciting work. But what we're trying to do is have something we can show back to the practice and and I'm hoping that might focus the mind of people around the importance of integrating passive design right at the beginning. Last question is just how you got started on this journey. What was it that made you 10 years ago say, this is the direction I'm going to take things? It's tricky, isn't it? Because it was incremental in terms of my role here. I've always been interested in designing with the environment. I guess ever since I was at school, the books I would naturally pick up, even not knowing much about architecture, were the designers who had an instinctive relationship, I guess, with the context they were designing for. And certainly during my degree, I, I had a number of tutors who were really inspirational in that and knowledgeable and encouraging. Where did you study, Louisa? So I did my degree at Cambridge and they had the Martin Centre. So every now and again, I'd get a little model and cycle down and put my model in the heliodome and figure out where the sun was going. And so there was a lot of investigation, I guess. And I would often use natural materials and forms and sometimes they'd try and calm me down. No, it has to be. It has to be organic. <laughs> and I guess I've been championing it a lot while I've been at HB. You know, it has to be twinned with knuckling down and learning the job of actually being an architect and how you deliver a building and the number of people involved and leading the team and the drivers that are going to push all of the other things out. And, and I think that's just as important sometimes in knowing how to communicate and when to communicate, when to drop these things in. Great. Well, thank you very much. After this conversation with Louisa, we're taking a break for the month of August. Climate Champions will be back in September. It's hard to believe, but we now have more than 30 episodes live so I hope you will explore some of the evergreen content in our previous episodes while we're away. Enjoy summer. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.